Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part four of our uh, practical strategies for the evaluation of incidental omas. And in part three, we were speaking about the pancreas, and we went through a number of different issues with the pancreas. And I thought I would save one as kind of a transition between pancreas and spleen. I think one of the most common challenging uh, events in terms of pancreatic imaging is a small vascular lesion by the tail of the pancreas, where the question is, am I dealing with a neuroendocrine tumor or am I dealing with an accessory spleen? These accessory spleens or ectopic spleens can sit just near the tail of the pancreas or on the tail of the pancreas. Obviously, when they're in the splenic hilum, they're easy to diagnose, but when they're inseparable from the pancreas, those little splenules are indeed very difficult. These um, lesions tend to be in the one to three centimeter size range, usually within three cm of the tail of the pancreas. When they're far away, it's easy. When they're abutting, it can be very difficult. 90% of our patients had an enhancing lesion with a mean diameter under three centimeters. The attenuation of accessory splenic tissue is similar to the spleen on both arterial and venous phase imaging. This is probably the most important finding. Now, when I look at accessory spleens versus uh, neuroendocrine tumors, generally neuroendocrine tumors are more vascular, but that indeed varies. The biggest thing is if you have the spleen and the tumor, or the suspected tumor in the same slide or nearby, the neuroendocrine tumor is usually more vascular, but beyond being more vascular, it doesn't have that same moray enhancement pattern. One of the nice things about accessory spleens, they enhance identical to a normal spleen with a moray pattern, and the enhancement is identical, okay? So that indeed becomes very, very important. If you make the mistake of calling something a neuroendocrine tumor and it's not, the patient will typically end up with a distal pancreatectomy. Now, in this article going back a number of years, unexpected splenic lesions are commonly detected on CT of the abdomen and chest and often pose a diagnostic challenge to both the radiologist and the clinician. That indeed has not changed, though we are better. When you look at incidental splenic lesions, there are many. Most of them are cysts or small hemangiomas. Sometimes hemangiomas are challenging because splenic hemangiomas are not like hepatic hemangiomas, where 90% of hepatic hemangiomas have peripheral enhancement. So they really have this very nice peripheral enhancement pattern. They fill in very nicely over time, and it's easy to make the diagnosis. With splenic hemangiomas, that's not the case. Hamartomas are also typically incidental findings, but they tend to bulge the splenic border and appear better defined on venous than arterial phase imaging. They're slightly a vascular arterial phase, but sharply marginated typically on venous phase. So although an incidental finding, I often can be certain what they are. Infarcts, again, patients typically have a history, maybe endocarditis, but often have other findings. An old infarct, okay, that's not uncommon. There's a little bit of scarring in the spleen, that's fairly easy. Things like abscesses or lymphoma or metastasis, typically the patient will have clinical symptoms. It's not really an incidental finding. You're doing a workup for an FUO, you find a low density splenic lesion. In the right history, that's a splenic abscess. Patients with weight loss, maybe low grade fevers, 
lymphoma, either primary in the spleen or as part of a multi-organ involvement, which is more common. Again, not very difficult. And although metastases are not that common to the spleen, they do occur, but usually you will see the primary tumor as well as other sites of metastasis. In this article by Tipavong, splenic lesions are commonly encountered and often incidental in nature. And they go through many of the different lesions, including some of them which can be impossible to diagnose on CT, including extramedullary hematopoiesis, if you don't have other findings, and so-called sclerosing angiomatoid nodular transformation, or sand tumors, or even an inflammatory pseudotumor. These are basically diagnosed with splenectomies. Primary splenic angiosarcoma, the third most common malignant non-hemolymphoid malignancy of the spleen, but again, those lesions are vascular. So those are not going to be very difficult in making the diagnosis. The congenital cysts, again, they vary, but the diagnosis of a cystic splenic lesion, which is benign, is pretty easy to make. The issue is when splenic cystic lesions get very large, they can push on the stomach, push up to the diaphragm, and so they may be removed not because you're worrying about malignancy, maybe you're worrying about potential rupture and bleed, but most commonly because of patient discomfort. Now, as I mentioned, hemangiomas are the most frequent benign tumor of the spleen. They're small, sometimes solitary, often multiple, as I mentioned about hamartomas, there are a couple syndromes that are associated with tuberous sclerosis, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, but those syndromes are so rare, that's not really the issue. The thing about hamartomas, as I mentioned, they tend to bulge out of the spleen, and that usually helps me with my differential diagnosis. Now, when you think about incidental splenic lesions, before you get too excited, there's things we all know. Most splenic lesions, surely incidental ones, are benign, and they can be followed conservatively or not followed at all. We rarely do splenic biopsies. Scan techniques for evaluating the spleen are somewhat limited. You can have single or dual phase. Most of the time you have single phase imaging, and there really are no good contrast agents for the spleen or no really dynamite splenic imaging techniques beyond dual phase imaging and perhaps doing 3D mapping. Now, when you're looking at a splenic lesion, trying to figure out is it important or not, clinical history, uh, did the patient have prior trauma? That may explain scarring. Did the patient have endocarditis or an endovascular stent repair? That may explain a prior infarct. Prior studies would be very helpful if they're available. Is the lesion I'm looking at present five years ago? And though it looks funny, it looked funny for five years, so who cares? current lab values, and other CT findings. Multiple splenic lesions as an incidental finding. One thing also to consider, particularly if you have multiple liver lesions, would be sarcoidosis. And that appearance could be identical to lymphoma. But again, it's something to think about. So when I look at the spleen and I'm looking at incidental findings, I consider, are they solitary or multiple? How large are they? Is there any enhancement? And are there any extra splenic findings, be it the liver or adenopathy? Then, of course, clinical history. If the patient has a history of sarcoid, my job is easier. If the patient has a history of lymphoma, my job indeed is going to be easier. In this auto by Seward, the question was, the incidental splenic mass, does it need further workup? 
And his conclusion was, in an incidental splenic mass, the likelihood of malignancy is very low, therefore follow-up of incidental splenic masses may not be indicated. Now that's a very bold statement. It's probably the correct statement, nevertheless it's very bold. Follow-up of splenic mass is incidentally detected at CT in patients with no evidence of previous or newly diagnosed malignancy and no systemic symptoms or pain does not appear to be indicated. And again, I think people have a hard time with leave-alone lesions, but most splenic lesions can best be described as leave-alone lesions. And you could see in the study by Seward, they had a large number of patients the incidence of malignant splenic masses, 49 of 145 in the malignancy group, 8 of 29 in the symptomatic group, and 2 of 205 in the incidental group. The incidental group consisted of new diagnosis of lymphoma in one case and mets from ovary in another case. Okay, so again, it's rare to find a splenic lesion that's of concern. But if it is of concern, usually you're going to find other findings in the patient, which makes the differential diagnosis fairly straightforward. And again, a conclusion. In patients with an incidental splenic mass identified in imaging, and with the absence of a history of malignancy, fever, weight loss, or left upper quadrant pain, such masses are highly likely to be benign, regardless of their appearance. Additional imaging of follow-up is not warranted, even if the mass does not show the appearance of a splenic cyst. Further workup is only needed if the splenic mass is seen in conjunction with other findings worrisome for malignancy. So what Seward is saying in this article is solitary splenic lesions with nothing else and no symptoms, no history, no fever, nothing else is benign. And let's not worry about it. Now, interestingly, one of the challenges, and I mentioned this a little bit before when we spoke about these uh, pancreatic uh, lesions by the tail where you're thinking about a splenule versus a neuroendocrine tumor. Accessory spleens are very common, 16% of patients, usually under two centimeters. They enhance similar to the spleen, but again, can simulate pancreatic renal or adrenal pathology. Again, the biggest issue is the uh, question of a neuroendocrine tumor. We also see this in patients who've had surgery in the left upper quadrant, but again, that tends to be less problematic. Again, the best statement I can leave you with, accessory spleens enhance like normal splenic tissue on both arterial and venous phase imaging and neuroendocrine tumors and nothing else does either. Very, very important. Here's a good example. What's that one centimeter lesion in the patient's tail of the pancreas? It looks like it's pushing in and there's the spleen. Look how the spleen is identical to the lesion. Here's another one. Here's the splenic lesion. Or is this a pancreatic lesion? Again, it's posterior. That can be helpful. But you see there, it looks like a little interface. But look at its appearance. It's identical to the spleen. Obviously, we don't always have dual face imaging. We have dual face imaging, particularly arterial you will see that moray pattern in the accessory spleen, which makes it very easy. But here, I think you have enough information. And again, as you go to later phase imaging, look how the texture of this lesion and the spleen become as one. Just a very nice appearance in that case, looking very, very similar. And here's just some additional delayed phase imaging. Here's another case. 
This is concerning. It's 5 cm. It kind of looks like maybe a pancreatic mass. But then you look at the spleen and you say, well, it kind of looks like the spleen and enhancement. They both measure around 100. But the appearance, particularly on these images, look how you can accentuate the uh, appearance of the lesion. But it looks very much like the spleen. Now you can say, well, maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe it's a pancreatic mass. But the more you look at it, the more variable presentations you show with uh, the volume rendering and the like, the more you recognize on the washout, right, as you go from here to here, that you're dealing with something enhancing identical to the spleen, washing out identical to the spleen, and that was accessory splenic tissue. It was splenule. Now, we mentioned some of the benign splenic tumors, and I'll just show you them just to be complete. Here's a typical splenic cyst, well-defined water density. Splenic cysts can calcify. Of course, as I mentioned before, anything that calcifies around the rim, I do worry we're dealing with a old hematoma. But regardless, this is a benign leave-alone lesion. Here it is in the coronal plane. Multiple splenic cysts. I think multiple splenic cysts at times can be challenging. Uh, you sometimes look and you say, am I dealing with hemangiomas? Am I dealing with lymphoma? But these are water density and well-defined. We mentioned about splenic hemangiomas before, and their appearance occasionally similar to hepatic hemangiomas, but most of the time are typically hypodense, occasionally hyperdense, occasionally there are punctate calcifications, but they typically don't have that classic liver hemangioma washout value. Here maybe is one, okay? That's kind of the ring donut appearance of what would be a hemangioma. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that you want to look beyond the spleen. And if you have a lesion that involves a spleen or multiple splenic lesions, and you have multiple liver lesions, you got to have something. Well, it could be lymphoma. That's a possibility. It could be melanoma. Because metastatic disease can involve the liver and the spleen. So, of course, history is important. Patient's lab values are important. It can be infection, particularly immunosuppressed host, where they get candidiasis or aspergillosis, usually in the spleen, but it also can involve the liver and potentially also involve the kidney. But again, the history. These are typically bone marrow transplant patients. And one thing to mention that's a great masquerader always is sarcoidosis. And I always get this case sent to me every couple of years. It used to be more frequent, but maybe because we spoke about it, people recognize it themselves. Patient has a CT scan for, let's say, trauma. Usually a 30-ish-year-old female who's always the sister of a doctor, often a radiologist. And they read this as lymphoma. And the truth is, without a history or anything, this could be lymphoma, multiple low-density lesions in the liver and spleen. But the patient is asymptomatic. If these were abscesses, that's a second thought, the patient would be very, very sick. It's not abscesses. This is sarcoidosis. More than half the patients with sarcoid have splenic involvement and liver involvement, but most of the time, at best, you see some splenomegaly or maybe hepatomegaly. Most of the time, you probably see nothing. But here's a great example of sarcoidosis. Here's another example where there's only splenic involvement. When you see liver and spleen, it makes your life easier, and surely if you see something in the chest as well. But again, spleen, up to 59% of patients. And again, other things in the spleen, incidental findings that are easy to diagnose, 
calcification. You can get calcified spleen from old trauma, but very dense calcification in an atrophic spleen that's autoinfarction and typically associated with sickle cell disease. Now we mentioned about incidental splenic lesions and we mentioned abscesses. Typically that's not going to be the case because patients with abscesses are typically sick. They're running a fever. Now it's more common to diabetics and patients with alcohol abuse, patients who um, have IV drug abuse. But again, it's a low density lesion. It's not well defined. It's not sharply marginated. In, there's no way you can call this a benign lesion with all the perfusion changes nearby. So that becomes a very important factor. Now the last thing I'll speak to you about will be hepatic lesions. Now we do see lots of incidental hepatic lesions. Sometimes the lesions are too small to classify further and they typically cyst. Many times they're hemangiomas and we're able to recognize them because of their peripheral pattern of enhancement and central filling in. Obviously, hepatic lesions are important because it's a common site of malignancy, be it primary or metastatic. It's the uh, most common site of extranodal metastasis seen in up to 1% or more of oncology patients. Small hepatic masses are commonly encountered uh, in both the population where there's no clinical feature or in the population where there are some clinical symptoms. But again, most lesions are still going to be benign. Um, the challenge also becomes on the really small lesions, surely the ones that are under 1.5, it can be difficult to characterize these lesions. And there's a good article by Gore and Associates looking at the incidental findings and how to manage them. And this was written 2010. It was very, very complicated. This was part of the charts, a lot of charts, a lot of sizes. And when there's too many choices, no one uses the process. This was redone by Gore in 2017. And it was a little bit or a lot better. Again, size range, risk, imaging features, all we used to make the diagnosis. And again, the core findings develop consensus on patient characteristics and imaging features that are required to characterize a lesion, provide guidance to manage such findings, and recommend reporting that reflect the level of confidence and focus future research by proposing a generalizable management framework across practice settings. So that was the goal of the team. And they had several easy to use guidelines. Again, it's not perfect, very much like the pancreas guidelines. It's not perfect, but it's a little bit easier. In low-risk patients, incidental liver lesions less than a centimeter do not require further workup and are considered benign. Incidental liver lesions 1 to 1.5 and of benign or flash-filling features like hemangioma do not require further workup. If a lesion looks suspicious, 1 to 1.5, get an MR. Obviously, if a patient has cirrhosis and you see a suspicious lesion, get an MR. In high-risk patients with incidental liver lesions under a CM, perhaps MR is the best thing to do to exclude or help exclude malignancy. Um, so it is a uh, way of thinking about things that you need to figure out if you're not certain what something is and it's small, you may need to go to another study. 
Now, most of the time, I think all of us see very tiny lesions and say they're too small to characterize or probably cysts or probably small hemangiomas. Here's a typical water density liver lesion, classic cysts. And here's a classic hemangioma called the giant hemangioma because it's over 5 cm. But look at the peripheral puddling and enhancement. There's no differential diagnosis. It's hemangioma. And as you go to later phase images, the lesion fills into peripheral to central. So puddling around the edge, the so-called starry night, and then filling it over time, very classic for hemangioma. What about this case? Eight centimeter or so mass, right lobe of liver, central scar, but it's very homogeneous. And so when a lesion is very homogeneous, you're then saying, aha, this is FNH. The lesion will typically fill in over time. Here's just a beautiful example of the lesion, central scar, filling in peripheral, and the lesion is nearly gone. The central scar typically will become isodense in focal nodular hyperplasia. Remember, FNH is a benign lesion. It's a leave-alone lesion. Now, a lesion that we think about with FNH is hepatic adenoma. At times, they can look very similar, but again, hepatic adenomas are typically vascular lesions. Here's two examples. They may not be as sharply marginated. They're not as homogeneous. They can be multiple. The issue with hepatic adenomas are twofold. One, it's the single most common cause of spontaneous hepatic bleed. So if you have a lesion, you would want to resect it. And the second thing is people now, for the most part, consider hepatic adenomas pre-malignant. And so you would want to resect them as well. Now you can see from this case, which is a hepatoma, how close the prior study looks. They look identical. This was hepatic adenoma, and this was hepatoma. So again, people are treating hepatic adenomas aggressively, and particularly solitary lesions will be resected. One thing we find helpful in creating the signature of a lesion is using MIP imaging with thin slabs. In this case of hepatoma, you can see the vascularity of the lesion on the axials, but it's better appreciated on the 3D mapping. Very nicely shown there. Now, the next thing we should talk about is looking at uh, cystic lesions of the adnexa. And again, this has been one of the challenges, getting people to follow the guidelines. Again, things that matter are age, cyst size, and clinical history. In this article by Say, Adnexal Incidentalomas on CT, How to Manage and Characterize, again, it becomes very important how we can do things. However, we realize that most adnexal incidentalomas are benign and therefore may not require further intervention or investigation. However, some prove malignant, and that indeed is the challenge. Uh, how we look at the lesions, uh, radiologists should be able to recognize the normal appearance of the ovaries and the CT characteristics of various adnexal incidentalomas. But again, it is somewhat of a challenge. When you have a lesion like this that's large and cystic and solid, that's an ovarian carcinoma. That's not a very difficult finding. Now, it's an incidentaloma, but we know it's going to be a malignancy. Look at the septations. Look at the size, the density. But what about this 27-year-old? Cystic lesions, do you need to follow this? Is this simply functional cysts, or do I need to do an ultrasound? What do I need to do? Typically, you'll simply follow the patient. Here's an easy one. When they're fat density, then they're dermoids. 
and typically they're going to be resected, but the specific diagnosis is easy to make. So there is a new white paper in 2020 talking about incidental and nexal findings on CT. It's worthwhile reading. Again, the question is the ability to separate those lesions which can be left alone versus those lesions would need to be followed. An extensive body of ultrasound-based imaging literature in surgical and clinically followed cohorts shows that the risk of malignancy in simple cysts identified on sonograms is negligible in both pre- and postmenopausal women, a conclusion confirmed by recent large studies showing no increased risk of malignancy in women with sonographically identified simple anexal cysts irrespective of size. So we have learned a lot more. We are thinking about this a lot more. So there are new guidelines. Again, the guidelines become important, and I'm not going to go through them in detail here, but Again, there's no absolute certainty. SRU guidelines, ACR guidelines at times can vary. Questionable size, 5CM, 7CM, whether a woman is pre- or postmenopausal, all tend to be important factors. It's important that radiologists who report CT or MR studies of the pelvis be familiar with the features of anexal masses that enable confident benign or malignant diagnosis so that those features can be described in the reporting of these masses and the risk of mischaracterization is reduced. So again, you want to be really good at making the right diagnosis. Here is from the ACR guidelines, and you can see it's somewhat of a complex chart. It always is. Is it a simple cyst? Other characteristics? Is it uncertain? What exactly are we dealing with? All of these features become very, very important. And again, here's some more of the information. I think it's important to read this, but it is a challenge knowing that most of the lesions are benign and you don't want to be more aggressive than necessary in dealing with these patients. Uh, concluding, uh, Patel makes the point, small incidental simple appearing anexal cysts on CT or MR do not justify sonographic characterization even when assessment is limited. So again, uh, this is evolving. There's still a lot of disagreement by the various organizations. Uh, because many anexal cysts are 5CM in premenopausal women and 3CM in postmenopausal women, the mere existence of a small, simple-appearing cyst with limited assessment is not enough to justify sonographic recharacterization or follow-up when it is an incidental finding. So again, a very uh, aggressive approach to say that you need to be conservative. Don't be working up all of these lesions. Very, very important. So again, some of the recommendations. Incidental and nexal findings on CT and MR exam of the female pelvis are common. There's an algorithm, again, determining what the lesions are and what needs to be done. Simple appearing cysts have a very low risk of malignancy. And recommendations regarding the optimal timing of ultrasound follow-up uh, is, again, something that is being looked at carefully. Should it be three months or six months or not at all? And again, let's go back to where we started this entire talk more than an hour ago. Agreement is lacking across institutions and within departments how to manage incidentalomas. 
You can see from this talk, we've gone a long way in trying to make things more standardized, but it's still not perfect. We have a long way to go, but I think you need to go with the literature, whether it's a pancreatic lesion or liver, whether it's a kidney or adrenal, know how to manage incidental findings. And again, there's lots of work being done trying to optimize this, and perhaps in the future, things like AI will be helpful as well. Now, one thing important, this article by Berlin made the point that if you use recommendations, you'll feel more comfortable and you'll recommend follow-up less frequently. I think when you don't know what to do, the easiest thing to say is get a follow-up. When you feel comfortable, you may not need a follow-up. So radiologists who read the white papers were more likely to report an incidental finding as likely benign, whereas those who didn't read the papers were likely to recommend additional imaging. So a very good statement in this paper. So concluding, departmental and group guidelines are important with incidental findings. Organized radiology must develop guidelines similar to the Fleischner Society for pulmonary nodules. And these guidelines are being developed and they continue to evolve. No guideline will ever be perfect, but we need to do the best we can. And with that, I thank everybody for their attention. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.